Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. .NET Rocks episode 964 with guest Scott Allen. Recorded live Sunday, March 30th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and uh, we're here. This is our new midweek show. Yes. Yeah. How you doing, sir? I am, you know, frantically crazy busy like you are, dancing between... Well, I did two weeks in Mexico, so I can't have suffered all that much. Yeah. Although I was working through big chunks of it. And then, uh, you know, we're this is shows in during Build, so I'm at Build, you're not. You know, it's it's just it's crazy. a crazy time. Yeah, I just got back from Germany interviewing uh, Christian Weyer. That was a we had a great time there. Um, more details about that will be coming out soon. Yep. But he is an archetypical developer uh, that Microsoft wants to uh, tell you about. That's a long story for another show. But one of the most fun things I did this weekend was, you know, we we have birthday parties here at the recording yeah. studio, and my daughter's 12th birthday party was uh, Saturday night into Sunday morning. But I also had another birthday party with 16 nine-year-old girls. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And they wanted to dance and sing and, you know, knock on the drums and play the keyboards and the guitars. And they were running around and in the recording booths and singing and stuff. Let me tell you something. There is nothing more fun than seeing, you know, these kids just having a great time in a studio. And if I had a studio to have a birthday party in when I was nine or 10, I would have remembered it for the rest of my life. Yeah, no, no question. And and sounds like they had a blast. Actually, I saw some of that on, on the Facebooks. Yeah. I see they were all having a great time. It's amazing. It's pretty fun. And it's a good idea. Um, well, you know, I don't know if it's an interesting idea. This is, is just a sort of a sideline thing that we started here. Sure. But it's a hell of a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah. All right, man. Roll the music. All right, buddy. What do you got? So, you know, in this uh, new world that includes Macs and PCs and iOS and Android devices, and, uh, you know, it's not just about Microsoft anymore for .NET developers, of course. I have a Mac Mini, and um, I got uh, a hard drive sent to me with a whole bunch of videos on it that were taken um, of the band, South by Southwest. And that was all processed on a Mac. Right. And the guy actually asked me to send him a hard drive that, you know, could be accessible on a Mac or a PC or, you know, whatever. So so I bought a portable hard drive and I sent it down to him and he sent it back with all the videos on it. And this is just typical of of problems that PC owners have is that Mac hard drives don't read. You know, Mac formatted hard drives, you just can't plug them into a PC. Right. So you got to have software to do that. And I imagine that, you know, it's the same problem if you're working with clients that have software that are, uh, you know, in iOS and they give you a hard drive and you want to copy it onto your whatever. So there are a couple solutions to this. And one of them is actually on SourceForge and it's called Catacombe. And I don't know how to pronounce it. You know, this is the problem we have with 
these crazy things. You don't know how to pronounce them, but I do have a tiny URL to it. And it is tinyurl.com slash Mac Drive on PC. Much better name, man. I think you you named it well. <laughs> yeah. Catacombe. What are they thinking? Are we just out of good names? Yeah. Mac Drive on PC. Any questions? <laughs> it's called HFS Explorer, essentially. And it allows you to um, connect to your Mac drives, external drives. Now, it does require Java. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, eh, I'll see what else is out there because I right. don't like Java on my machine. So I did find there's a company called Media4. Media4.com makes a product called Mac Drive. Uh, you go to Media4.com, and they have a five-day trial. And I downloaded it and installed it, and boom, right in the Explorer, there's my Mac Drive. So I'm liking this product, and I plan to buy it. Now, once you had the files on your machine, could you actually work with them? Yeah. Are, are video formats the same? Yeah, exactly the same. Oh, that's a good news. Okay. Yep. So as long as you can read the drive, you can probably work with the data. I could just mount the drive, and it just begs the question, why do I need a third party to do this, yeah. Microsoft? Let's uh, let's be grown-ups about this. Yeah. Right? We have to share data between these systems. It's ridiculous that it's It is a ridiculous. And, you know, if it if there's a legal reason, I can accept that. But come on, really? It why does, seems unlikely. It seems unlikely. Why does this third party have to get involved and I have to pay them to, you know, yeah. Whatever. Or install Java. Yeah, we're installed. All right. On one hand, I have to install Java for a free software. On the other hand, uh, it's another company. Right. And and it's right there in Windows Explorer. Boom. Oh, well. Well, there you go. All right, buddy. That's a good one. Yeah, it's a solution. Know it, learn it, love it. Awesome. So who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 712, and that is the one we did with Mr. Allen, where we talked about Modernizer. Wow, that was a while ago. That was a while ago. Yeah, it's disturbing. That's uh, t November 2011. And this comment is from Chuck Bryan, who says, What appropriate timing, two years ago. Just this week, I went to a client's site to install my shiny new MVC3 application. I realized a mistake when I loaded the site up in IE8, and all the styles were missing. Yeah. I know, shame on me for not testing other browsers, but this was one of those times when I was working fast and furious and just forgot. I ran the site in Firefox just to make sure, so I quickly figured out that it was an HTML5 CSS3 thing, and I've been following Scott's Modernizer posts and thought, what gives? I'm using Modernizer. I felt like Lando Calrissian at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> it's not my fault! <laughs> Hanging my head in shame, I went back to the office to begin my research. I looked in my underscore layout files and saw that I did have Modernizer, but I'd moved it along with all my other scripts, to the bottom of the page. Hmm. Once I moved it back up to the top, it was pure joy and fist pumps. I was glad to hear Scott mention this near the end of the show. I find Modernizer to be pure awesomeness. Pure awesome. There you go. Chuck, thanks so much for your comment. I'm going to bring it up with uh, Scott in just a minute here. A coveted .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd like to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And that brings us to our guest, Scott Allen, or K. Scott Allen, as he is officially called. He is founder and principal consultant with Ode to Code LLC and the CTO at Medisolve Incorporated. He has over 20 years of commercial software development experience across a wide range of technologies. He's successfully delivered software products for embedded Windows and web platforms and developed web services for Fortune 50 companies and firmware for startups. He's also a Pluralsight author, probably the most famous uh, Pluralsight author and also host of the podcast uh, Herding Code. He's written a few books and spoken at a few conferences around the world. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. Of course, we're talking about Scott Allen, OdeToCode.com. Welcome back, Scott. Thank you guys for having me back. Well, thanks for being here. We were last talking about Modernizer two years ago as that uh, writer writes in, the commenter, I should say. I yes, always like yes. to say the caller, but no, we don't have callers. We have writers. <laughs> commenters. So uh, a lot has changed since then. Been very successful with Pluralsight. You're talking about how uh, web development has changed. Even in the last two years, a lot of things have changed about web development. What are your thoughts these days? 
Yeah, web development is really sort of growing up. And I think a lot of that has to do because of single-page applications and people building really complex client-side things. So it's not just about a little bit of jQuery code and one page here and there anymore. It's about thousands and potentially tens of thousands of lines of script get loaded into a page. And we have client-side MVC frameworks and routing and, and just all sorts of abstractions and complexity on the client side. And really, I think server development with Node.js or, or just Node.js development in general has also been pushing JavaScript forward because now people are not just writing JavaScript to manipulate the DOM. They're writing JavaScript to talk to databases and act as proxy servers and build command line utilities. So there are now a lot more JavaScript programmers. There's a lot more libraries. There's a lot more um, features that are being built through libraries and also being looked at to be included in the, the language. It's very democratic, isn't it? I mean, the, the whole web development thing, it's a lot different than the corporate development world that a lot of .NET developers come from, um, you know, where, where you know, we, we share knowledge, we go to classes and training, and we buy expensive tools, and, you know, we, it, the web seems to be very much, uh, well, we, somebody invented something with some free tool, and we go look at it, and everybody decides whether they're going to get behind it or not, and things just naturally happen. It's a crazy environment, and it's disturbing to a lot of people if they're coming from a corporate environment to try to get into this because it's it's just not an ecosystem where one vendor dominates anything and one vendor produces a framework and everyone uses it. It's more like 20 people will write a framework or a library, and out of those 20, two kind of get handpicked by the community as, you know, these are the things that we like and or these are the ones that we're going to use. But... It's a bit crazy just because of the number of different backgrounds that you can run into when you come across a JavaScript developer. You know, there's people today that all they have ever done really is JavaScript and right. the front-end web developers. And you certainly run into people who came from a uh, C-sharp background and people that came from a Ruby background. So it's, it's not just that there's no vendor that dominates the scene. It's also that there's so many people in the space that come from such different backgrounds that the number of ideas is sometimes overwhelming. And the... But the level of innovation as well and the rate of innovation means that you either have to ignore everything at regular intervals, poke your head up and say, okay, now let's uh, take a look around and see if anything is worth changing here. Or, you know, you just go completely mental. I mean, at some point you have to, as Richard likes to say, pick a tribe and draw your line in the sand and say, this is what we're using. Deal with it. That's right. I mean... <laughs> You ultimately say have to say, this is what I'm using. I'm going to build something. I'm going to deliver it. I don't care if Hanselman says I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which you might do from time to time, and that's okay. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, just thinking back to Chuck's comment here, which only two years ago, a modernizer, is modernizer still at high in your repertoire? Is that something that's in the header of every page you're building? No, not really. And part of that reason is just because... If you if you target, let's say, IE9 is about the worst browser that anything I write nowadays will, will target. Right. Uh, and, and most people have reached that point. Um, if, I, if I was building a public website, I might reconsider things and might try to look at some traffic statistics and figure out if I still have users with IE8 and 7 and 6. But most of the software I build is for the corporate environment, and fortunately... Everyone has moved on at this point. Right. Your customers are all running Win 7 and above, and that means IE9 and above. Exactly. IE9 and above is, is the key. Yep. And Chrome, I mean, there's just, there just is no old Chrome browsers. <laughs> no, it's hard to keep an old version of Chrome around. <laughs> it just wants to update in the background. So is it just Spa that's changed things? Um, and I don't mean to say that, you know... Um, sort of just as in, you know, is that all you got? Right. But I mean, that is a big change. But let me ask it this way. How has the sort of the spa revolution, the single page app revolution, changed the way that we write web apps so much that uh, that we, you know, we have to completely change our thinking? Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things in there because I, I think spa has been part of it. But I also think 
Node.js has been part of it too because uh, when you well, let's back up and talk about the spa case. So obviously, you have a lot more script on a page, and you need to start thinking about how to build some proper abstractions or modularize this code and have tests around it. But you've also seen things over the last couple of years where now most people building a non-trivial JavaScript application now also have some sort of build system for their JavaScript to, to manage this JavaScript, to run a, a linter over it to make sure that there's no strange errors or things that you should avoid in the code to, to minify it and pack everything up into one file. A lot more people are using module loaders with JavaScript so that I can write pieces of JavaScript that are pretty much independent from each other, but then pick how they're going to depend on each other at runtime and have something that just automatically puts them together for me or brings them into the DOM for me. Um, I think the HTML5 APIs have also changed how we think about JavaScript because it used to be when you're writing JavaScript, what are the two things you can do? Well, you can manipulate the DOM and you can make a, uh, an HTTP call to a server. But now there's things like IndexedDB and local storage and session storage and geolocation, all these other things that you can interact with and program against. So it's not just writing really simple click event handlers anymore. It's things like, you know, I need something that does data binding and routing and caches stuff in local storage for me. And I want to do that in a way so that I don't have to, you know, explicitly write the cache code everywhere. I want to think about more like what I would do in a C-sharp environment with design patterns and have a, a decorator that, that wraps some sort of data access component for me and transparently provides caching for me. So it's all these things that we've been doing in other languages for years to try to manage complexity and, and build better software. Yeah, you're making it sound like JavaScript's a real language, man. That's weird. Exactly. I mean, now now we look at design patterns and modularity and testing and build process to put it all together. So it's it's all grown up. So um, getting back to the sort of the, the corporate developer, you know, from whence we came, uh, well, Richard and I anyway, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the VB, you know, Windows app. And there's a, a lot of Windows Forms development going on still out there. And a lot of those developers, you know, don't like the web just because it's, you know, a little more programming than they're used to, perhaps. They love the, they loved web forms and, yeah. you know, they're, they won't let go of their web forms. But, you know, this, if you, it, it occurs to me that single page applications are a lot like some of the features, you know, some of the, some of the ways that we built web forms. You could, for example, you know, with a with a nice set of controls and some AJAX stuff, build a single page application with web forms. You don't have to have multiple pages. You could sort of live on the same page. the The difference, of course, is what's going on underneath. There's a lot more data um, being sent across, uh, a lot more state, uh, as you know, and it it kind of begs the question: Couldn't web forms be reimagined? you know, as with the, with the user interface aspect of drag and drop and controls and all of that stuff, but under the hood have all the spa goodness and the angular goodness and all of that, that we, that we know and love. Hmm. Interesting question. Um, and two things jumped to mind. The first thing that jumped to mind is I've been using angular JS quite a bit over the last couple of years. And one of the reasons that I think I was able to pick up angular quicker than, let's say, someone who has never done Windows development, is that my experience building WPF applications with toolkits like Caliburn.micro mm. that has model view, view model, and dependency injection, and conventions, and this and that, a lot of those concepts apply to Angular. Um, it was like building uh, a WPF or a Silverlight application, but I'm using JavaScript and HTML now. Right. So certainly there's a lot of crossover. But then, um, so web forms providing spa goodness, I, I think it's possible. I, I know web forms, though, is such a high level of abstraction that I think it sometimes becomes difficult to provide the right extensibility hooks to get um, behind everything that's going on. But I, I know one of the things that people really miss about web forms when I talk to them uh, because they've moved on to ASP.NET MVC or some other environment they really miss 
having a toolbox and being able to interactively design something inside of Visual Studio. Sure. And to, to those people, what I usually show them is something like using, um, so you want to you tweak some CSS to see how it looks. Well, why don't you open the developer tools in Chrome or Internet Explorer and tweak it inside of there, and, and you get almost like a design time experience when you do that. Mm. Um, there's also a lot of tools out there now. There's in, in Visual Studio, oh, and I can't remember the name of this feature. In Visual Studio, there is a feature that will automatically reload the browsers when they're connected to your ASP.NET web development server mm, mm. because Visual Studio injects a little bit of JavaScript there so that if you change one of your source files, the browser just refreshes. Mm. And you can get the same thing with Node.js too. So so the experience is that this, no, you don't have a drag and drop surface inside of your editor or your IDE, but as soon as you type a little bit of HTML or a little bit of JavaScript and you save that file, the browser is reloaded with what you've just changed and you see the difference right there. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're getting more and more like a traditional development environment. Like you, the browsers become the smart client development space. Right. I mean, it's not a toolbox. It's not a design surface. It's not bland, but it, it's something that's pretty close and it's authentic because what, what you see really is what you're getting because it's, it's live. Right. So you're getting more into a real what you see, what you get kind of development space, but you're also... I think we're still struggling with the tooling. You know, to Carl's point about WinForms, it just worked, mm. man. Like, you spent so <laughs> little time worrying about design. Yep. It just it followed the rules that, that Microsoft had outlined for us on what clients were supposed to look like, and you did it. Yeah, those were good old days, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> It, it it does seem like like nothing has been as easy since those days. Even though we have all these incredible new things out there, there is a certain simplicity, and and you could just get the job done with those tools. Well, it was a UI defined according to those guidelines, and the tools were built to do it. Like you had to fight against them to not build what Microsoft expects you to build, what the correct UI of the day was supposed to be. That's right. And we make one application, and it's in Battleship Gray. Yep. One yep. look, one style. Boy, it was pretty. Mm. Not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the funny part is, of course, we could make it ugly. Like, if you worked hard, you could make it flashing text purple on green. And you can certainly do that on the web, too. Yep. Oh, yeah. It seems some <laughs> nasty web stuff. And it's a lot, lot easier. <laughs> well, I, you know, and... Getting back to it, I, it, it is possible to do with all of the stuff that we know how to do and code that we know how to generate, it would be possible to to reimagine what the web forms designer with, you know, just some some better guts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I certainly to see see another sort of trend where, where people are building the same applications. Uh, with sort of the same look, and, and particularly when you get into the concept of an app and something that might run on a Surface or an iPhone or an iPad, mm -hmm. there is, in most cases, a certain look and a certain style that you follow for those types of applications. And, you know, it's entirely plausible that someone can come out with some frameworks and tools that accelerate building, you know, that style of application. Hmm. Yeah, wouldn't we call that light switch? <laughs> It is interesting, Richard. I, I mean, kind of waited for somebody to bring up light switch, but you know, light switch is is, yeah. Well, light, but you know, light switch apps tend to look like light switch apps the same way that um, SharePoint apps tend to look like SharePoint apps. The mm. same way that uh, Bootstrap apps look like Bootstrap. But apps. I think of all of the technologies that you know, I'm thinking of that light switch probably has the most promise to to be what I'm thinking. I mean, you, you, light switch is uh, a little more high level than what I'd like. You know, I'd like to be in Visual Studio and be, be doing the web forms experience, but, but you know, having, but having it uh, generate what light, what light switch would generate. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you know, I'm, I got to talk to Beth about this because I know you can use light switch in Visual Studio. Of course, it's built into Visual Studio. So, I, and know. it does spit out HTML5. That's right, it does. Mm. And I think part of this, in my mind, is 
we are already living with standard styling, like bootstrap. Mm. It's a standardized set of stylings that most people seem to be happy with. And it's distinctive enough that you recognize it as a distance. You know, as soon as you flip to a site that's been built with Bootstrap, you're like, ah, it's been built by Bootstrap. It's almost an anomaly when someone actually styles it enough that you don't know it's Bootstrap. <laughs> that's true. And I haven't used Light Switch myself. I've read about it a little bit. And certainly there there is a case to be made that there needs to be a tool for corporate developers who just need to get something out. You know, I'm, that's really I'm true. Not going, I'm not going to build a web app that's going to be public publicly competitive on the internet it doesn't have to be that different i just need to build something for my little department here on the internet and i don't want to start from scratch yep that's true i just want to get something done and it looks just like the last five applications that i built for this department but you know the data sources are different and they want a few different features but i mean this gets back to the the sort of mantra that we've had all along which is what is your tribe what is that tool set that you know uh, will get you to something that your customer is happy with. Mm, that's true. And and there's certainly more of a tool set around JavaScript today than there was years ago. And mm. I'm, I'm thinking about things like the build systems, also like client-side package managers like Bower. So when I want to install a new library like Underscore or something like that, I don't go out and download it anymore. I just say Bower install Underscore or Bower install AngularJS and it just appears for me. And, and there's a lot of command line tools for JavaScript now, but there's, you know, certainly people that look at the command line and they just don't like it, don't want to use it. And that's, that's fine. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Time to flip the switch of bad comedy. I don't know, man. I can't, <laughs> I can't just come up with the, the pressure to come up with funny every day. There you go. I don't know. Where is that comedy no JS service you've been Where wanting? Where is the funny switch? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Insert funny comment here. Somebody flip it. <laughs> it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, let me tell you that the new Telerik DevCraft Q1 2014 is here. This release is packed with improvements, including responsive layout, document processing, mapping functionalities, and much more. With this release, Telerik Tools enables .NET developers to build responsive experiences for any screen. Download your free 30-day trial today at Telerik.com devcraft, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Absolutely. So who's our winner, buddy? Today's winner is Mark Davies. Congratulations, Mark. Golf clap for Mark. Golf. You got clappers? I got clappers. Awesome. Right here. Nice. That was a guitar pick falling off my shelf right there that you <laughs> heard. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the United States, all over Canada, all over the world, and uh, every show we give away stuff. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of stuff. Technology to one lucky member of the fan club. Scott, you know what's coming. Oh, I think I do. If you had five grand to spend on technology right now, today, what would mm. you buy? I think I might need your help with this one, Carl. <laughs> okay. Well, Richard just found a, uh, uh, a Kickstarter of a 3D printer that prints food. Oh. 2000 bucks. 2000 that's interesting. You buy two of those and some food toner, I guess, <laughs> and you've got yourself a restaurant. <laughs> nice. I guess. It's called Foodini. Would it fit in my carry-on luggage? <laughs> yeah, as long as you take it in the big bag, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine going through customs with that? With a food printer. Yeah. Oh, I just want to set it up on the, the tray in front of me and just like, no, I'm fine. I don't need I'm anything. <laughs> I'm making my own. I love it. You know, coming back from Germany, they scanned my bag and they wanted to know what my microphones were. And I have these head, you know, they're headset mics, but they're really high end. Like, you know, they're the Madonna mics, you know, the ones that are kind of invisible that hook over your ear. And um, and they, they, you know, bring over the captain or whatever and they look in my bag. And this is in Germany. And they pull them out and they, they're looking at me and staring, you know, to explain. I said, it's microphone. And they're like shaking their head like, hearing aid? You know, like everything's a personal thing. Hearing aid? 
no microphone. You know, like talking, recording, microphone. Ah, microphone. Okay. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Microphone. Oh, so the reason I need your help is that I've always been fascinated by light shows, like the light show at a, a rock concert. Hmm. And I've always found it the most interesting seat is somewhere where you can watch the board, you know, the main soundboard. And there's always someone back there kind of moving things in time with the music and right. making lasers go crazy. And I did a little bit of searching. I mean, they have these, um, and I don't know the terminology at all, but, you know, these programmable lights that have lots of LEDs inside of them. And you can program to do different colors and different intensities and rotate and spin and move. And, oh, yeah. you know, if, if I had $5,000, I, I think, you know, buying something in that $5,000 range so that I could program and build my own light show, that would make me happy. You know, you could open your own bowling alley. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a thing these days, the whole space bowling thing. I know, yeah. Crazy. Mm. The light show and all you know, that, yeah. Because rolling balls down the, down the alley is not enough, so now we're going to make lights blink, too. I had to. I told you that we're doing uh, parties, right, at the yeah. studio, and I went out and got... Uh, at a party store, I got some spinning disco balls and, you know, laser LED things, these cheap Chinese whatever uh, manufactured, and they really suck. But <laughs> I got three or four of them, and I got a fog machine. It was like 20 bucks. Uh, that lasted about five minutes. And it's then worth it, 20 bucks. And it then it's, it just keeled over and died and won't even turn on anymore <laughs> and and one of the, one of the leds one of the 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 spinning light the show things it went it it's kept going around but the lights didn't work so yeah you get what you pay for i guess there you go so i i would i agree scott you know if you're gonna do lights go for the expensive ones get the good ones get the good ones don't get the cheap uh walmart ones <laughs> awesome Hey, I want to jump back into this uh, and actually reference a blog post of yours, Scott, about JavaScript promises. Because to me, I mean, we're talking about all these third-party libraries, but the browser itself continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if more and more we're gonna we're gonna start getting away from libraries and into what's built into the browser. So a promise is a is a like a task in .NET, an asynchronous uh, sort of the way you can do async and await, uh, async await. Right, you use a promise in JavaScript. Very, very similar. I mean, it's the same, same, very similar concept to a task. You know, uh, I need to execute something. It's going to going to be asynchronous. All you need to give me back is some sort of object that will give me something in the future or tell me when this is done. That, that's what a promise can do. I promise to give you the value in the future or the error if something went wrong. And that is one of the features, actually, that's being talked about to to end up in the JavaScript language itself. But until we get until we reach that point, there's, I don't know, anywhere from five to five hundred libraries that implement promises. <laughs> 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 implement promises today, like before it's actually in the specification. And, and they turn out to be really useful because um, you know, if you're writing code that has to make a call to an HTTP endpoint and get a value back. And then you take that value and you make another call to the server and take that value and make another call to the server. Well, that's three asynchronous calls. The traditional way we've always done this in JavaScript is you invoke a method like $.get with jQuery to do an HTTP get. Mm. And then you, you pass in a function that will get called when that's completed, when it's successful, and pass in another function when it's an error. And... For the most part, that has worked over the years, but now when you get into the situation with more complex apps where, oh, I have to do three steps, I have to do step one, step two, step three, if you just keep passing functions, anonymous functions, into these things, your code begins to crawl over to the right and become rather unsightly, like one function nested inside of another function inside of another function. It's what some people have called the pyramid of doom. Yo, man, <laughs> too much nesting. Right, exactly. But with what promises do, if you if you call a method that's going to be asynchronous and it gives you back a promise, the promise API says that that object has to have a then method. And you can you can invoke dot then and pass in the function that you want to invoke on success and another one when there's an error. And that three-step process then, when you read the code, if you write it all with promises, would look like this. It would say um, call server dot then 
do this, dot then, do another thing, dot then. You can just keep composing and, and chaining them together that way, and it gets rid of the pyramid of doom. Um, you still mm. have to write all these little functions that you pass in, but it's a much nicer approach, and the, the code is much easier to read. It's much easier on the eyes. Not so doomy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, it, I mean, I think this is an interesting, again, we get back to the really conservative corporate developer who doesn't like this tribal effect, and I have to pick a set of libraries in two years from now. The guys who told me these libraries are awesome are like, wow, you're still using that? To, can I just go with what's in the browser? Mm, currently, today, no. Um, you really need some sort of library to get promise support, whether it's jQuery, which provides it, or a dedicated promise library, like the one I'm most familiar with is one called Q. Right. Yep. And there's others out there. There's a whole bunch of others. A whole bunch of others. And yeah, you would you would really have to pick one. And um, sometimes it's hard to convince people that maybe you should get out on the edge a little bit and, and be forward thinking and pick one of these things and adopt it. You know, if it makes it any easier in in this particular space, promises, they've been around for a while. The the, the leading libraries are pretty mature. Yeah. And they're not they're not big libraries. I mean if you look at Q, we're not talking about tens of thousands of lines of code. It's it's relatively small and you can actually read through it and, and get an idea of exactly what it's doing for you. At the same time, Scott, look I mean, if if promises get implemented and they work, mm. isn't Q done? Like, why would you use it? Yeah, if it's the, when it's actually in the language, we might see these libraries go away. That's true. But mm. there, so what's happening in the JavaScript space is there are some people that get together to put together specifications for these libraries. Like, there's an a actual specification for promises that people who would write promise libraries should follow that specification. And that specification tries to keep in line with the official language specification that's still in a draft, probably um, won't be finalized till the end of this year, so that when that day comes, you should just be able to rip Q out and just use the native JavaScript promises, and it should just work. Should. Wait a minute. That's a new acronym, because IJW is it just works. So I-S-J-W, it should just work. That's kind of like the tentative, you know, I-S-J-W. Yeah, and, and the truth of the matter is that the promise specification itself defines a very small API, and almost you, you almost always need more than, than what's in there, and most of these libraries provide additional APIs that you're going to use that yeah, we don't know if they'll be in the language or not, so yeah, there's always going to be changes, and this is... This is the world we live in mm. with JavaScript and the browser and HTML, you know? <laughs> it's been this way. Yeah. It's been, it's been this way for a while, but it, yeah, the, the pace of change has accelerated and, and it makes people a little nervous to jump in. Definitely. I also think we're in this sort of Cambrian explosion phase where there's so much power now in the browser. Now that JavaScript really runs fast and we've figured out the bad parts, thanks to Doug Crockford, that we're able, we have this diversity of things, but give me a few years and we're going to get to a place where the built-in capabilities of the browser are going to be enough for your average app. Oh, absolutely. I, I do absolutely think that we're, we are in this phase where we're still trying to figure things out. And over the next couple of years, we will continue to stabilize and things are going to get better. And, and there is going to be the right place to go to get this done and the right place to go to get this done. Um, there's still going to be, I'm sure, a lot of libraries and a lot of different ways to achieve things, but I think we are going to stabilize. And really, in the next, I think, maybe four or five years, I think we'll start to see that the, the, the script that appears in the browser, so I'm specifically talking about um, DOM, building web applications on the client, the, the script that appears in the browser is not the script that you write. I think more and more people are going to accept and gravitate to things like TypeScript yeah. and CopyScript right. and, and Dart and other things that haven't been invented yet, but, but they're going to be there. Do you think that's going to enable the next sea change in web development? Because uh, something's clearly got got to i mean think about the the times that you know those events that happen that make 
these explosions. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, some people think that it's in the language itself, you know, or in the browser or in the DOM or anything like that. But I kind of, I tend to agree with you, Scott, that I think that the, the next sea change will be brought on by advanced languages that will generate JavaScript, making JavaScript the sort of the, the assembly language, if you will. Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, today you can go out and you can find for ECMAScript 6, which is the next version of JavaScript, that you know maybe some browsers will be fully supporting the final spe- specification sometime late next year or early yeah. next year. Hard to tell. But you can already find transpilers for that. So if you want to write in ECMAScript 6 and still have things work in environments that don't support all those features that's going to happen. Yeah. And then the other interesting thing is ASM.js, that specification. There's a specification out there that says, let's pick out some low-level features of JavaScript, pieces of the language that we can use to build primitives that are very easy for the virtual machines that execute JavaScript to, to optimize, and in fact, have uh, JIT compilers and ahead of, ahead of time compilers that can run this code as fast as possible. And when you read through that specification, you can certainly think ahead into the future where you say, oh yeah, so there's going to be, I I can write JavaScript code in any language that I want. As long as it can be compiled down to asm.js, that means it can load into a browser or into Node and it can run very fast. Now, aren't we just talking around this issue of, in the end, all JavaScript is basically being executed on the fly, although clearly the uh, just-in-time compilers are super fast now and better and better, and you want to actually get to a compiled state of JavaScript? Mm, well, I think there's some environments where, where people want that to happen. It doesn't necessarily have to happen in, in the browser, but what I'm saying is there, there can be a, a subset of JavaScript that gets used that can execute very efficiently. Right, mm. and that that is easy to target from some sort of higher level language like like a like a like a coffee script or something that has hasn't been invented. So that can be compiled. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're saying. It can be compiled, jitted. Right. But do you see it as a subset that is say UI independent, like it's just the the core language, something that would be more bendable to Node or even to lighter weight platforms? Yeah, it would definitely be agnostic to the type of host it's executing in or if you're in a UI versus some web server process that's running inside of Node or something like that. But um, I, I think the key is... Uh, so so what I see is so many people come into JavaScript from different backgrounds and right. and not everyone's really happy with the language, number one. Some people I don't think just... anybody's happy with the language. <laughs> well, they're, they're, you, know, you, you meet some here and there. <laughs> they just haven't done it long. Just wait. You'll learn. Mm, yeah, you know, that's true. The, the language clearly has weaknesses, without a doubt. And it, and it comes, it has a rough origin. We've, we're definitely doing things with it it was never intended to do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But you can't toss the thing out. It's too core to what we do these days. Right. And it's everywhere. The ability to write JavaScript and have it run in everything from a you know refrigerator to a web server is just amazing well and that's know. the thing you know and we always use the the i think it's ridiculous but we always use the refrigerator as the ridiculous example because it's something you don't think about but but it's true that it only takes about a dollar's worth of electronics to embed a web server in any electronic device mm. right so and it and this is another thing that i heard uh, i believe this was on npr might have been science friday but that all these all these um, verticals, you know, automakers and, uh, you know, refrigerator makers, they've tried to make protocols, digital protocols for communication before and have failed because of all of the things that the web guys have already figured out. So they're coming around now and it's just happening now to the conclusion that, hey, why don't we just use the web? Because the the stuff is cheap, and they've already figured out all these problems of intercommunication and you know security and authentication and authorization and all of these things. We'll just use that. And by the way, the parts are cheap. Mm. So you're going to see web servers in cars very soon. Yeah, and you know what that sounds like? That sounds like um, the people that said, "Why are we using 
SOAP and all these fancy protocols when HTTP already yeah. does most of that. Right, yeah, exactly. Classic, <laughs> classic example. But I think, yeah, yeah the, the two sides of this, and, and I put some of this on note as well, is general purpose computing hardware has now gotten so cheap that it's cheaper than the normal embedded stuff. And it's got enough power that it can afford to run uh, the HTTP protocol. And then you build up what JavaScript has got now, where you have higher language level languages, the coffee scripts, and maybe even more abstract than that, so that you can get into verticals. Well, you know, what if we wanted a language that was just an if this then that type language for folks mm. who want to program against their appliances? Like we're talking about the stack here that does the Internet of Things. It's all meta language, uh, you know. Yeah. This is what we're talking about: these specific languages that compile down to JavaScript. Yeah, DSLs into JavaScript. Yeah. I can see that, yeah. I mean, there's a reason There's we have so many languages today. Why do some people choose C-sharp over Java, over Ruby, over Python, over Perl? You know, I, I, I can never see like the world coming together and saying, you know, JavaScript, that's all we need. There's always going yeah. to be people that want other languages that have different features or a different aesthetic. God, I got such a chill when you said <laughs> that. Know. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's what that was. Oh, whoa. <laughs> you know that the, the ghost walks through you thing? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I see it because in the end, it's like you, you in reality right now, today, for the most part, it starts on the PC side, we're all using the same assembler. Mm -hmm. you know, the x86 in microcode instruction set inside of the Intel processor is pretty much everywhere. That's and, right. And in reality, of course, is... And if you're coding against in C++, you write the same code, whether it goes down to a compiler that runs on an Intel chip or on an ARM chip, you don't know and you don't care. And if we're really going to put JavaScript in the same place where you write in whatever language you want, it all becomes JavaScript in the end. God, I'm still getting chills when you say that. <laughs> I did it to myself. <laughs> but it does make sense. Yeah, and I, I think it just takes time. I mean, today people still aren't comfortable with, oh, I'm going to write in what, and it's going to compile to JavaScript, and that's just weird. But uh, that it'll it'll come. That's just a you know, the, the line is first kill all the lawyers. It's like once <laughs> all the old developers are dead that remember the JavaScript that sucked horribly, this won't be a big deal. Yeah, right. right? But right now, well, we have a memory of being brutalized by JavaScript and the DOM. Mm. We just find this whole thing insane, but right. you know it's clearly being fixed. It's our scars as developers that are holding us back from thinking this is a good idea. Yes, yep, and yeah, some of that JavaScript deserves, and of course, some of it should be blamed on uh, browsers and you know things like yeah, that. Yeah, well, but and when I hear you say, "Hey, I'm living in an IE nine and above world," I'm like, that's not a bad world to live in. No, not really. It's, it's not too bad. You know, it, I can think back to the year like 2002 where you would always find problems between like Internet Explorer, Netscape Navigator or whatever. Yeah. And those problems are, are kind of far and few between these days, which is really kind of nice. I mean, you still get into a situation where, oh, my gosh, this thing is five pixels to the left compared to the IE version. What's wrong yeah, with IE? Yeah, and that's what we're agitated about. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, if it was up to me, I'd say, oh look, well, five pixels. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, not bad. And if you're still fussing about that, you need a hobby, maybe right. fishing. I don't know something. Go back to designing print pages. You know, you never have to worry about being off by a few pixels. Oh yeah, because they never had layout problems in printing. Oh no, <laughs> I had a chance to go see an original Gutenberg Bible. Oh wow, huh? Um, you know, one of the first things ever, the first thing ever printed. And let me tell you, they got kerning issues. Yeah, well, <laughs> I bet they do. <laughs> I was, I would say they had paper issues. Was it still like, did the paper wasn't crumbling? And Oh, I mean, the, the book is 500 years old. It was very carefully preserved. Yeah. But, and it's in a version of German that's, that I don't know that anybody actually reads anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's very squared and blocked off, mm. but. It was still a revelation, sure. you know, at the time sure. when people are handwriting out each book, and suddenly this guy made—I don't, Gutenberg made three hundred of them in the first run. Yeah, and that's just, mm. you know, profound. Yep, and it's boom, your world has exploded. That's right. 
I think that's a show. Yeah, I think so. Ending on a Gutenberg Bible reference. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what's next for you, Scott? I have, let's see, coming up, uh, the next thing I'm doing, next public thing, is actually the Prairie DevCon in Winnipeg, Canada. Nice. Which is um, a second week of April, I think. Nice. It'll still be snowy there. We've been there. Oh, my. Snowy, yeah. And, uh, and of course, there's NDC this summer in Oslo. And, yeah, other than that, just continuing to stay busy and working on a Pluralsight course, too. So. By the way, I um, your learning to program course, I recommend to kids uh, all the time that come up to me and say they want to get started in programming constantly. Oh, cool. Yep. Very good. Yeah, I was, that was uh, a bit of a stretch for me. I haven't done something like that. I, I've never taught you know a course like that, but it was I tried to remember the days when I was trying to learn to program on a Texas Instruments computer and yeah. You know, help people through the process and make it exciting for them. It's pretty cool. And it was uh, well done. Thank you. All right, sir. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time on Dining Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.